Good afternoon and welcome to Bible Quest. Happy New Year. This is the first broadcast we've done or webcast we've done in the new year. Uh, Joe, Chase, good to see you guys and be back at it with you. Chase, Happy New Year, guys. And Joe, with you both. Elmire, New York. And uh, so we're going to be talking about the book of Hebrews today. Um, and the book of Hebrews is an interesting book. It's one of the epistles in the New Testament, but it's interestingly, interestingly one uh, that um, the author is not mentioned. You know, oftentimes if Paul writes a letter, it says, uh, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, and so on. Uh, Hebrews doesn't start out that way. So who do you think wrote Hebrews? Um, let's talk about that for the next 45 minutes. How does that sound? <laughs> How about let's not? I don't know who wrote the book of Hebrews. I've got my own opinions, and I'm sure you guys do as well, but I know it's inspired scripture. There you go. I actually, I, several, several years ago, I sat through a class on the book of Hebrews, and the leader of that class spent the first class period, 45 minutes, discussing the author. And uh, interestingly enough, when we finished, we decided that we didn't know. <laughs> All right. But we knew God inspired it, didn't we, just by getting into it. And I, I think a little bit of what Jeff is going to talk with us about today really helps emphasize that point. I mean, the book of Hebrews is a masterpiece uh, in the way it's put together and in the way that it ties things back to the Old Testament. We learn things about Enoch, Melchizedek, uh, about um, Abraham that we wouldn't have known if it wasn't for the book of Hebrews. And so no doubt it's inspired by God. And that's pretty much all we need to know. So I'm going to share my screen. I'm having trouble doing things correctly here right now, but I think this will work. Okay. Does everybody see the word Hebrews? Yep. All right. I see it. So here is a timeline of the Bible. And of course, uh, what's interesting is, as you look at this timeline, Everything from here to here is in the Old Testament, right? Correct. And somebody would say, wait a minute, this part right in here is not in the Old Testament. Uh, some The so-called 400 years of silence. Actually, those years are described in the Old Testament. They're described in Daniel, the 11th chapter. But let's not worry about that right now. And let's move on to look at the time from Jesus' death and forward. So after Jesus' death, uh, the church begins. When the church begins, it's mostly made up of Jews or Gentiles or both? Entirely Jews. Jews. As a matter of fact, on the day of Pentecost, Peter could say to his audience, men of Israel, listen to these words. Uh, Go ahead, Chase. I was going to say, and if there were Jews, there were proselytes in Acts 7 were introduced to a couple of Jewish Christians who one of them is listed as a proselyte, Nicholas. You know, even even in Acts chapter 2, it mentions some proselytes there. Uh, That had had not really impressed itself upon me until sometime recently, but it's in Acts chapter 2, and when he's mentioning all of the different nations from which the Jews came for the Feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem at this occasion— it, at the very end of verse 10, it says both Jews and proselytes. Mm-hmm. Sure enough. But that doesn't change the fact that we're not talking about Gentiles who are pagans and idol worshipers becoming Christians at this point. We're talking about Jews and some people who uh, maybe were not Jews ethnically, but they have become impressed with the God of Israel. Um, and so that's how it begins. In, in Acts chapter 11, verse 19 even, now at this point, 
well, let's just, what's the turning point? When did, when do, when do the doors get open to Gentiles? In a big that way? happens in Acts, the 10th chapter. Yeah. With Cornelius, right? Mm-hmm, that's right. But even after that, it's talking about uh, those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenician Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except to Jews alone. And then it goes on and talks about how the gospel was then preached to Gentiles in Antioch. But up to, up to Acts chapter 8 and really up to Acts chapter 10 and the first part of 11, we're really talking about the church being made up of Jewish believers. But these Jewish believers, when they became Christians, did they immediately uh, start working on the Sabbath day and eating ham sandwiches? No, they, they avoided all of those things, it seems like, for a long period of time. So we have on screen here, Acts chapter 21 and verse 20. Uh, guys, just refresh our minds. What's going on in Acts chapter 21? Well, Paul was uh, and made it to Jerusalem during what we call his third journey. And uh, he comes into Jerusalem, finds out that uh, people have been speaking poorly of him. He agrees with the uh, leaders of the church there to uh, fulfill a vow with four other men. They do that, enter into the temple, and that's when uh, Paul is going to be arrested uh, or, well, beaten and then arrested. Clearly, by this time, Gentiles have been becoming Christians, but the problem is that amongst those Jews in Jerusalem and surrounding area who were Christians, they had been hearing that as Paul went amongst the Gentiles, he was telling uh, Jews to forsake Moses and not to keep the law. And so James says to him in verse 20, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews of those who believed, and they are all zealous for the law. And so he wants Paul, as a matter of fact, I'll just read in verses 22 and 23, What is it therefore? They will certainly hear that you've come. Do therefore this that we say to you. We have four men that have a vow on them. And then verse 24, these take and purify yourself with them. Do you guys think this is a Nazarite vow that's that's seen in in Acts chapter 21? What do you think? It it certainly seems awful awful similar to number six if it's not. Mm -hmm. What do you think, Chase? Yeah, I think it's a form of the Nazarite vow. Some people raise questions like, Correct me if I'm wrong. You're not allowed to partake of any wine uh, if you're on a Nazarite vow, from what I remember. Joe, is that right? Uh, yes, yeah, right. Anything, yeah. anything from the from the grapevine. Right, and so some people would suggest, well, then if Paul took the Nazarite vow, he wouldn't be able to take of the Lord's Supper, and so therefore he wouldn't do that. I don't know. I, I think it could be a Nazarite vow, and he just cut out some parts that that were that wouldn't suit the Christi- uh, Christianity. I don't know though. But what, what we see is that we see evidence that Jewish believers, Christians, were still going down to the temple. As a matter of fact, right. Paul goes into the temple with these believers to, uh, to fulfill their obligations. And uh, they would still practice some of the liturgy of, of the old law. And you would imagine the priests there, the Levitical priests under the old law, uh, administrating these ordinances and, and rites. And uh, so you've got Christians, they're Jews, but they're Christians, but they've kind of got one foot in each world. They're still living according to the law of Moses. Um, and, and there was nothing wrong with that per se. Uh, that had been the word of God. They had understood it to be the word of God. They had lived their lives in devout service to God, keeping those laws. 
now when the Christ has come and they have recognized he's the Christ, they've embraced that, but they don't understand the implications with respect to the obligations of the law. Would you say that's a fair kind of representation? Would you say it a little differently? Uh, I like the way you said it. Yeah. I, I wasn't looking that. for that. I was really honestly looking. Do you have a better way to say it? Anyway, there's another uh, piece of the history of the Jewish believers in the first century that we need to pay attention to. And that's the fact that during the time when uh, the church was just Jews, uh, a persecution arose against those Jews. And who was doing the persecuting? Jews. Ironically, yeah. Jews. Unbelieving Jews were persecuting believing Jews. So in Acts chapter 8, after Stephen has been stoned to death, verse 1 says, On that day a great persecution began against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. So you've got this persecution against the church. The church is primarily Jewish. And uh, in Acts, 3, Acts 8 verse 3, Saul, is, who is later the apostle Paul, is uh, the lead, as a leading figure in this persecution, and he began ravaging the church, entering house after house and dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Uh, later on in Acts chapter 9, uh, now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples, the Lord went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. What does it mean by any belonging to the way? Well, later in Acts 19, uh, that same phrase is used, and it's referring to Christianity. Uh, quite possibly, uh, a little bit of a reference to what Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And so this claim that to come to God is the only, the only way to do that is through Christ. And so I think it's referring to Christians. So, so then, what, and who were the Christians at this time? Well, they were believing Jews. Right. So we have unbelieving Jews persecuting believing Jews. Uh, later on in Acts chapter 26 and verse 10, Paul will talk about this period of time and say, this is just what I did in Jerusalem. Not only did I lock up many of the saints in prisons, having received authority from the chief priests, but also when they were being put to death, I cast my vote against them. And as I punished them often in all the synagogues, I tried to force them to blaspheme and being furiously enraged at them, I kept pursuing them even to foreign cities. We've not lived in a time where we had to live in fear that somebody could come crashing into our house and with some kind of authority behind them, haul us off uh, just because we're Christians. But that was the way it was here. And, and even on Paul's uh, journeys, uh, often it was the Jews who uh, incited violence and riots against Paul and his companions. Uh, not entirely, but many, many occasions. So then we come to the book of Hebrews. Oh, we've got one other little thing in history that we need to make note of. It's not a little thing, but in AD 70, so about 40 years after Jesus' crucifixion, uh, Jerusalem is destroyed, including the temple, and that brings a de facto end to the observance of the law. No longer are you going to have priests in Jerusalem at the altar administering uh, the rights of the Jewish religion. All right, now let's go to the book of Hebrews. Let's go to Hebrews chapter 2 and read verses 1 through 3. So uh, remember in Hebrews, what's the first chapter? What big point do you get out of the first chapter? Jesus is better than the angels. Why do we need to know Jesus is better than the angels? 
Well, it, that means that he is not just an angel. He's not just a created being. Um, uh, he is sitting at the right hand of, of God on high, verse 3 talks yeah. about. And, and, and you'll and, notice... Oh, go ahead, Joe. Sorry. No, go ahead. Well, I was, was going to say, the, the, the conclusion that he makes there is that the old law was given through, the, uh, uh, through angels, and anybody who disobeyed it received just punishment. How much more if it's uh, what people reject of Christ? Yeah. So yeah. And, go ahead, Chase. And I was just going to say to further that point, I mean, and you'll look at chapter one and there's references to Psalms, Second Samuel, Isaiah. All of these references are pointing to the Old Testament scriptures to make the case that Jesus is God. He is, he is greater than the angels. And, and I think that's helpful. One of this idea that, See, Jesus is the new messenger, and, and the angels were the messengers of the law. That's not necessarily an idea that's familiar to everyone, uh, but there are mentions of that in Acts chapter 7 and verse 39, in Acts chapter 7 and verse 35, in Acts chapter 7 and verse 53, the law as it was ordained of angels, and in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19, the law ordained through angels. Uh, again, those references, Acts chapter 7 and verse 35, the angel in the bush that appeared to Moses. Acts chapter 7, verse 38, the angel that spoke to him in Mount Sinai. Acts chapter 7, verse 53, the law ordained by angels. And Galatians chapter 3 and verse 19, the law uh, ordained through angels. So then once we understand that you can think of the law as having been given by angels, as Joe, as you were pointing out, people were held accountable for, for that law that came through angels. Well, if Jesus is greater than the angels, then how much more had we better pay attention to the things spoken by Jesus? And that's the argument being made here in chapter 2 of Hebrews, verses 1 through 3. So let's read those first three verses. Anybody volunteer for that? Therefore, we must give the more earnest heed to the things we have heard, lest we drift away. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we ne neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? I don't want to make too big a point of this, but we get some indication as to who's writing Hebrews. It's not one of the original 12 apostles, or at least it would seem that way. Can I ask why, Jeff? Well, because it says here, the word having at the first been spoken through the Lord confirmed unto us by them that heard. If this were being written by one of the original apostles, he was somebody who was one of the original hearers. He wasn't somebody who heard from the original hearers and had the word confirmed to him. By, by their miracles, he would have been somebody who would have been taught by Jesus himself. So it's maybe. funny you point this out because I've always read that to mean maybe it has to be an apostle. I've always taken it to mean Christ is the Lord. It was first spoken through him. And then those of us who heard Christ, who heard the Lord, are those who I, I've always taken it to mean, well, then maybe it is one of the 12 apostles. So it's funny now that you put it that way, it makes me think the other way. So just reading it here, it says, which having at the first been spoken through the Lord. So at first it was spoken through the Lord and the apostles would have heard that was confirmed unto us by them that heard. So the, the original apostles would have been those and, and the original disciples would have been those who heard the Lord. 
And those are the people who confirmed it unto the reader and uh, or to the writer of Hebrews and his readers. That's the way I take that anyway. Yeah, I, I think it, at least in the English, the, the pronouns are helpful. You have those who heard him, Jesus, and confirmed to us so that those and the us would be two different groups. Um, yeah, I, I, I think that's right. And then maybe also just keep in mind passages like Galatians 1, where Paul just makes a, a very strong argument that he did not receive the, the message through the apostles. Uh, yeah. He received it directly from the Lord. That was significant for him to, to make that statement. seems like that would be equally significant for the other apostles as well. They didn't receive that message from anybody other than the Lord. It does seem, based on the, the strength with which Paul makes that argument in Galatians 1, that I didn't get this from man, I got it directly by revelation, that it would be odd to think of Paul as the writer of Hebrews based on what's said here in Hebrews right. 2. <clears throat> okay, well, uh, so then we're going to suggest that Hebrews is probably written sometime beyond the very beginning of the church. Um, then Hebrews chapter 10. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 10 in verse 32. <clears throat> if I say, if I say, uh, Joe, call to your remembrance when your children were in diapers. That makes sense, right? That makes very good sense. I have to go, I have to think pretty far back, but yes. If I, if, if <laughs> I say, Joe, call to remembrance when you were living in Elmira. Uh, I don't need, I mean, I'm, I'm right here right now. That doesn't make any sense at all. Yeah. So Hebrews 10 32 says, call to remembrance the former days, calls them former days in which after you were enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly being made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions and partly becoming partakers with them that were so used. Uh, and then it talks about those who were in bonds and had their possessions taken and so on. That sounds like a reference to this period of persecution when the Jewish Christians were being persecuted by, remember, Hebrews is written to Hebrews. What are Hebrews? Well, Jewish people, Israelites. And this Hebrews 10.32 sounds like this persecution that we've got on screen but that's former days. So it seems like the book of Hebrews is written somewhere after that. Does that make sense? Makes, makes good sense to me. Clear as mud. All right. <laughs> then let's look at Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 7. Here the writer says, Remember them that had the rule over you, men that spake unto you the word of God and consider the issue of their life, imitate their faith. The, I don't want to press this too, too hard. I don't want to make, more, make it more emphatic than I can, but the, it, the sound of that to me suggests people who have passed on or people who have served in prior times as, as elders in the churches um, and you can now see uh, the results of their work. This translation says the issue of their life, and the writer of Hebrews is calling upon his readers to remember them. Um, and go ahead. We'll also notice down in verse 23, take notice that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom, if he comes, 
I will see you. And so uh, that just would make me think Timothy was a young man when we were introduced to him. And if the timeline of what you're saying works out, Timothy is still living, which makes sense because he was a young man when we were introduced mm-hmm. to him, but maybe some of these other men that we were introduced to in the book of Acts who were older than Timothy have passed on. Mm-hmm. So that, that suggests to me that we're in a second generation period here after the beginning of the church. And so oftentimes it's supposed that the book of Hebrews is written uh, as late as the 60s. Could it be later? Well, there is this. In Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 4, uh, what do we have there? Hebrews 8, 4. Uh, he says, now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are those who offer the gifts according to the law. Which suggests that Hebrews is written before the the destruction of the temple. Yeah, because after the destruction of the temple, you're not going to have people offering gifts according to the law. Um, that's is going to come to an end. So, yeah, why, why would he be spending so much time talking about sacrifices if there wasn't really a place to offer them up, anyways? Yeah, yeah. So, so, this I think paints a picture for us that helps us understand the purpose of the book of Hebrews. Uh, you have these Jewish Christians who are. They're, they're believers, they are Christians, but they're still zealous for the law, they're still going to the temple, they're still looking to the Levitical priesthood for assistance in their worship and their offerings, and uh, that is about to come to a crashing end. And if they don't understand that this is God's plan and that what they really need, what they really have in Christ is not dependent upon the temple and that they have something far better than the Levitical priesthood in Christ— this could be devastating to them. And so the writer is urging these people to grow and leave, leave their understandings that they had gained from the law and move on in their understanding of Christ. I really think that's what Hebrews chapter 6 is about. Hebrews 6 says uh, they need to leave behind or not laying again a foundation of repentance and good works, faith toward God, instructions about washings, laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, eternal judgment. All of those things are things that Jews, even before they were Christians, believed in. Now, not all Jews did. For example, the resurrection of the dead. What do we know about that? Only the Pharisees believed in that. Yeah, the Sadducees Sadducees. were very, very against it. But, but there were examples of resurrection of the dead in the Old Testament scriptures. Right, right. So, so a God-fearing Jew, a devout Jew who believed the word of God, would have an understanding of that. And so these ideas are fundamental ideas that you got from the law. And the writer is saying to his readers, look, you know, don't, don't rest on your laurels. Don't be content with what you already knew. You need to grow. And in fact, does, does, have, they, have they grown as much as they should have in this period of time? Uh, the Hebrew writer sort of uh, rebukes them a bit because they uh, have not grown as they should in chapter 5, verses 10 through 12, or, or I'm sorry, 12 through 14. Yeah, in the context when he's going to draw some comparisons between Melchizedek and Jesus, he allows that this is going to be hard for you all to understand because you haven't grown as much as you ought to have grown. In verse 11 of chapter 5, he calls them dull of hearing. They've become dull of hearing. Yeah. So, so it's important to write a letter to these people basically saying you need to get with the program and you need to learn what you have in Christ and how uh, much better what you have in Christ is. So now let's maybe take a few minutes to develop those thoughts. Go ahead, Chase, you start to say something. Well, I was just going to say, but I've always thought it's funny as I get to this section and I read it, I'm like, 
Well, he's calling those who don't understand the Melchizedek thing, babes in Christ. What does that make me? Because I, I don't know if I would have ever made this, this connection if it wasn't for the Hebrew writer. Well, if you hadn't, you could get it from Joe because he's got that all figured out. Seriously, <laughs> <laughs> uh, sure Joe, before we went on, on live today, Joe was shedding some light on some connections between the story of uh, Melchizedek and, uh, and uh, Christ that I hadn't made. So well, maybe sometime we'll just have to take another program to talk about that. But today, let's see some of the things that are said in Hebrews to encourage the readers to understand they've got something better in Christ. So, Jeff, if I just interject one thing really quick. I, I think your timeline is, is spot on. And so I'm, I'm thinking mid to late 60s, perhaps, of the writing of this. Mm-hmm. And so if this is what is a phrase I'm going to use that I don't like, second generation Christians, Mm-hmm. Um, I think all of us need to be first generation Christians. Uh, but, but if these are not of those, say the acts Two era, um, I think that that makes the points that are being given here very strong. And, and so for any second day, second generation Christians today, you know, you need to develop your own faith just as the Hebrew writer is saying here. Let, let's take just this chase a rabbit. Why don't we like the term second generation Christians? Uh, because each of us needs to have our own faith. We need to not just believe, have the faith of our parents. Uh, I have one caveat for that, and that's the, the uh, Timothy with his mother and grandmother. Um, uh, but, but each of us needs to be a, uh, not inheriting just our parents' faith, but have our own. This was a problem in Old Testament Israel when uh, you'd have a generation that was faithful to the Lord, and the next generation would come along, and their faith really wasn't in the Lord. They were just following the traditions of their parents, and they would drift away from them. Right. Well, okay, back to Hebrews. In Hebrews, there's a, a number of arguments that are made. We've already seen the argument, Jesus is greater than the angels. The angels delivered the law, so Jesus' message is, is uh, at least of equal importance or greater than the law. Then he's going to argue that Jesus is, uh, he's going to contrast Jesus with Moses, really. He's going to compare Jesus with Moses, but in chapter Three, he talks about Moses being a servant in God's house, whereas Christ as a son is over God's house. He's going to talk about the Israelites in the Old Testament in the wilderness and how they, through lack of faith, did not enter into their rest. They did not make it to the promised land. And he's going to warn his readers. The writer of Hebrews is going to warn his readers. There's a, a rest that is that remains for us. Let's be sure that we don't make the same mistake that the Old Testament Israelites did. And then we get to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. And the writer had earlier mentioned the idea of Jesus as high priest in chapter 3, verse 1. Now he comes back to the idea of Jesus as high priest. And what does he say about the priesthood of Jesus throughout the rest of the book of Hebrews? What does he say about the priesthood of Jesus that should help Jewish Christians in the late 60s deal with the destruction of the temple when it comes in just a few years and the elimination of the temple service overseen by the Levitical priesthood. What does the writer of Hebrews say that should help them realize, you know, that's, that's not a great loss. We have everything we need in Christ. Uh, maybe Psalm 110, how, how often that's quoted that we have a priest forever. Uh, they, they are not losing a priesthood if they are in Christ. And, 
And as a matter of fact, one of the things that's mentioned in the book of, of Hebrews is, well, for example, Hebrews chapter 7 in verse 23, talking about the, Levit- the, the Levitical priests of the Old Testament. They indeed have been made priests many in number because that by death they are hindered from continuing. And so every time a priest died, you had to get a new one. Well, with Jesus, you have somebody who abides a priest forever. And there's the parallel made yeah. to Melchizedek in, in that. Well, which is the whole idea, right? The, according to Melchizedek is more everlasting than the priesthood that we saw set up in, in, the, uh, in the Pentateuch. And so right. the idea is Christ is even better than that. And so you've really got a better deal. Um, he'll say things like, I think it's later in chapter 9 or 10, maybe you guys can help me put my eyes on it, that here's a priest that, uh, that the, the priests that aren't Jesus they're going in to offer up sacrifices, but they have sin themselves. Jesus himself has no sin, and he is able to go in and offer up sacrifices. Yeah, that's Hebrews yeah. chapter 7, verse 26 in following. For such a high priest became us holy, guileless, undefiled, separated from sinners, made higher than the heavens, who needs not daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifice first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. Uh, so the Old Testament priests, they were guilty just like the people were. And we have a high priest who is apart from sin. Um, and he's offered himself once for all. You know, one of the things that I, I like to point out when talking with people who've been raised in Roman Catholicism, in the Roman Catholic Church, the doctrine of the, the Eucharist, the doctrine of, of the um, the, the mass is that when the priest blesses the bread, it literally becomes the body of Christ. Transubstantiation. That's the word, right? Transubstantiation. Yeah. They say the miracle is it still looks and tastes like bread, but it's actually the body of Christ. And so what the Catholic doctrine teaches is that not that the bread represents the sacrifice of Christ, but that the bread represents the sacrifice of Christ. In fact, they will say the sacrifice of Christ is repeated, but in an un- unbloody manner every time you have the, the Catholic Mass. And so what they're saying is Christ is being sacrificed over and over and over again. And one of the points being made in the book of Hebrews is the contrast between the Levitical priests who had to keep making the sacrifices over and over and over in Christ, who made a sacrifice once for all. You have that once for all idea in chapter 7, verse 27. You have that once for all idea in uh, chapter, hmm, uh, I was thinking it's in chapter 8. I'm not spotting it right there. But you get it again in chapter uh, 9 and verse 28, and in chapter 10 and verse 14. By one offering, he is perfected forever. Uh, them that are sanctified once for all in chapter 10 and verse 10. So the point of being made in Hebrews, Jesus died once and he made a sacrifice once, and that sacrifice does it. It doesn't have to be repeated. So thankful for that. Uh, I mean, one, it's a sacrifice that we desperately needed, Jew or Gentile alike. Uh, But so thankful that uh, the Lord was willing to perform that sacrifice while being the priest simultaneously, which is just mind blowing to me. One of the things the writer does in Hebrews is to the point you just made is he spends some time before he shows that Christ is a greater high priest. 
he shows that Christ meets the qualifications of a priest. You know, he, meet, he, he meets all the requirements. Uh, if you go back to Hebrews chapter 5, um, he talks about the priests are taken from among men, uh, that they may offer sacrifices and things pertaining to men, but they're appointed by God. They don't just say, I'll be a priest. He's somebody who has to have standing with both men and God. And he talks about Jesus having standing with men and God. He is encompassed with weakness like other people in that. And, and then the the example that's given is he, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, in the days of his flesh, having offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death. So he endured hardship and suffering and uh, in that way was made like us. And yet he was appointed by God. And so he has standing both with God and, and with man. So the point is he is, he meets the requirements of being a priest. He is appointed by God, but he lived as a man and suffered as, as men do. There's one requirement that the Levitical priest had to meet that Jesus doesn't meet that gets highlighted in the book of Hebrews. What's that? Well, he wasn't from the right tribe. And the implication is if he's not from the right tribe, then apparently there's been a change in the law. The, the law. And so, so now these Jewish Christians are having, uh, having it shown to them that the law <coughs> that they're zealous for, remembering James' language in Acts 21, they were zealous for the law. The Hebrew writer is showing them, really, that law has changed. It fulfilled its purpose. So you see that in Hebrews chapter 7. And so if we could, let's read Hebrews chapter 7 and verses 12 uh, through uh, 14. And then let's skip down and get verse 18. For when the priesthood is changed of necessity, there takes place a change of law also. For the one concerning whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no one has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with reference to which Moses spoke nothing concerning priests. Verse 18, For on the one hand, there is a setting aside of a former commandment because of its weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. And on the other hand, there is a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So in that way, the writer makes it clear to his Jewish audience that the, the law has served its purpose. But it's interesting when he says the law made nothing perfect and, and thus was weak. And that kind of brings us to the, the big contrast between the, uh, the promises that we have in Christ as opposed to what you had in the law um, under the law, they made sacrifices for sins, but what do we learn about those sacrifices for sins under the law over in Hebrews chapter 10? Blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. But Verse 4. That, that confuses people, though, because we can turn back to the Old Testament and we can read that people were forgiven, right? Absolutely. And even in connection with their sacrifices, we, we read that they were forgiven. So how do you reconcile that? Here it says the blood of bulls and goats should, cannot take away sin, and yet we read about people being forgiven in the Old Testament in connection with their sacrifices. Romans 4, I think, helps uh, quite a bit with that by uh, using two individuals, Abraham uh, and David, as examples 
of men who were saved, who uh, had their sins forgiven. Uh, David talks about how blessed is the man to whom the Lord shall not impute sin. Romans 4, 8 quotes from uh, Psalm 32. Um, and it's because of their faith, Romans 4 talks about. Mm-hmm. Okay, so, uh, so faith is the condition, whether we're talking about Old Testament times or New Testament times. And on that basis, people can be forgiven. What is the mechanism by which people in the Old Testament are forgiven? The same mechanism that by which we are forgiven, the blood of Jesus. Yeah. Romans chapter 3 speaks to this. Um, it talks about the sacrifice of Jesus. It calls it a propitiation. And by virtue of that sacrifice, God is showing his righteousness, his justice. He is punishing sin. And it makes that point both with reference to the sins done aforetime, Old Testament times, in Romans chapter 3, verse 25, and also at this present season, uh, New Testament times, Romans chapter 3, verse 26. So when we talk about people in the Old Testament being forgiven, I, I believe they were forgiven. David, you mentioned Psalm 32, where David says, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not reckon uh, iniquity, or however it says that, Joe? Impute sin. Impute sin. I believe David was forgiven, but he was forgiven as by, by the God who knew what he was going to do in Christ. It's the sacrifice of Christ that is reaching backwards, or, or you could say God looking forward to the sacrifice of Christ and on that basis could forgive David. It's not the blood of bulls and goats that took away his sin. Exactly. So if you're a Jewish believer in 66 AD or AD 68 or 69, and the destruction of Jerusalem is around the corner, you're being told, look, in terms of forgiveness, the sacrifices that they make down at the temple, they, they're not even what gives you forgiveness. It's the sacrifice of Jesus, which was made once and for all, that, that gives you your forgiveness. And so you have a better sacrifice, a better high priest in Jesus. And then when the temple is destroyed and the Levitical priesthood is no more, all those Jewish believers could, could take heart in, ah, we've still got the thing that God ultimately had in mind. Yeah. The Old Testament system has served its purpose. Yeah. And, and to just kind of cap it all off over at the end of chapter 10, he'll talk about, you know, you've already been through some persecution to a certain degree. You know, some of you have had your property taken and because you know that there's a better possession, a lasting one. I think he's talking about some things that happened years before this, Mm -hmm. but he's, I think looking at him and and saying around the corner is going to be some more persecution. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And we're not of those in verse 39 who shrink back to destruction, but we're those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Ignore the chapter break. Because the very next thing he goes on to do is to say, we Jews, look at everyone before us. Look at all the forefathers that we have who have went on and pressed on and kept the faith. And I think it just kind of puts a cap on it. Not, none of this was for naught. We have all of these people as an example. And in, as you get into chapter 12, they we're surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses. But what is this great cloud of witnesses doing? They're pointing to Christ. And it's so cool as you go through each and every one of those Jewish forefathers, how every one of their stories points to Jesus Christ and what he'll go through. Mm-hmm. And so it's just a symphony of a book. It's wrapping it up really well for us to tell us to hang on. You're going to go through persecution again, maybe. And don't give it up. Christ is there cheering you on with all your forefathers as well. 
And so it's a beautiful book. Yeah, good. I'm glad. I like the way you brought us into chapters 11 and 12 and um, well done. Um, all right. So we've done all of this. That's really what I wanted to get across today. Just kind of the message of the book of Hebrews and set in its context. Now we've got just five minutes left. Um, there are various things you might want to talk about in Hebrews. If there's not anything else in particular that you want to talk about, uh, there's a little phrase that sometimes gives us troubles. And what we've talked about today might serve as a uh, as some context for us to talk about that phrase. Anything else you want to talk about in Hebrews before we go to my little phrase? No, I, I was wanting to talk about that little phrase. Do you know what little phrase I'm talking about? No. <laughs> All right, look at Hebrews chapter 10. Um <laughs> It's this expression in, at the end of verse 25, as you see the day drawing near. Hmm. Um, there are different interpretations for that, and, I, and I'm certainly not going to be dogmatic here. Um, I'm not even absolutely certain in my own mind. But in light of the things that we've said, I think maybe something makes sense to me. So let's back up Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus. Uh, and, and one of the things, by the way, that he's done in chapters 8, 9, and 10, he's contrasted the Old Testament worship where there was an emphasis on things made with hands. That's the expression the Hebrew writer uses, or things of this creation. And he says those are not the real things. The true things are the spiritual things. Um, so you've got this tabernacle made with hands, but there's a heavenly tabernacle. And that's the real thing. Really, this is the meaning of spirit and truth in John 4. Spirit, the spiritual worship, is the true worship. The opposite of that would be the uh, worship involving the things made with hands, which is just a shadow, a copy, a figure, not the true. And so the the conversation Jesus has with the woman at the well in John 4, it's about the temple and whether the temple in Jerusalem or the temple site on Mount Gerizim where the the Samaritans had previously built a temple, which one was the right one? Well, that's things made with hands. And that was just about something that foreshadows the true. And so one of the things the Hebrew writer does is he tells his readers, all the things that you're zealous for in the law, they're just shadows and copies of the real thing. And when they're gone away, that's not a great loss because you've got the real thing in Christ. All right. But having said that, and, and by the way, that's, that's, that's how I deal with instrumental music. Instrumental music was part of the things made with hands system of the Old Testament, like incense was. It was a shadow of spiritual realities that we have in Christ. But coming to Hebrews 10, verse 19, having therefore brethren boldness to enter into the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the way which he dedicated for us, a new and living way through the veil, that is to say his flesh. And having a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in fullness of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and having our body washed with pure water. I think he's alluding to baptism. Let us hold fast the confession of our faith that it waver not, for he is faithful that promised. Let us consider one another to provoke unto love and good works not forsaking our own assembling together, as the custom of some is, but exhorting one another in so much the more as you see the day drawing near. You see where I'm going with this. So what what day is drawing near then? It could be the end of the world, and that's what some people think it is. And, of course, we don't know when that's going to be. 
it could be the day of the destruction of Jerusalem, which they had been told uh, was coming. And yeah. Jesus had talked about signs that they would recognize that it, that it was coming back in Matthew chapter 24. It's interesting that throughout the book of Hebrews, there's not more mention specifically of the destruction of Jerusalem that's coming. Uh, but this one phrase here seems to me may well allude to that, the destruction of Jerusalem that's around the corner. So, well, especially and, the, oh, go ahead, Jason. No, no, no. Go ahead, Joe. Uh, I was going to say that if, if we, if we can put this about the, you know, at the end of the book of Acts, it's past the book of Acts, Timothy's been in prison. We don't have any record of that, at least, uh, been in, being released. Um, it, so between 65 and 70, perhaps, if we think about those three and a half years that Vespasian had encamped around uh, Jer- Jerusalem um, uh, before the fall in AD nice. 70, man, that really fits together very nicely. Yeah, seems to me it does. Chase, last word. 13.1, let love of the brethren continue. 13.3, remember the prisoners as though in prison with them and those who were ill-treated since you yourselves also are in the body. He's talking about brethren who have been locked up. Mm-hmm. Whether that was decades before this, I think it's more so talking about brethren who have been locked up recently. And so I think maybe it's the tip of the iceberg for some things. And so he's just whetting their appetite for having strong faith that we can do all right, guys, thanks. I think that's a good overview of the book of Hebrews. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be with everybody next week, Wednesday at 3 o'clock.